At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Well, hello and welcome to another Drug Science Podcast. And today I have a, a rather unusual guest, a man who's come quite late in life into the, to the psychedelic therapeutic space, but in quite a short time he's left a, a really impressive mark. His name is Peter Hunt. He's currently chair of Mind Medicine Australia. And as he'll explain to you in a minute, this is a charity that, that he set up to try to rectify what he saw are some of the deficiencies in terms of treatment of severe mental illness in Australia. So very welcome, Peter. Thank you, David. It's lovely to be here. Now, you and I worked together very closely at the end of last year on my, my grand tour of the eastern states of Australia, <laughs> where we, we gave a lot of talks and we met a lot of people and we tried to communicate the importance of psychedelic therapy. And as I think we'll come to later in the uh, in the podcast, it was rather successful. We had a good outcome. But but during that those weeks spending I spent with you, I, I discovered your backstory is really rather impressive, and and I'd love for you to share with my my listeners uh, that story. But before we talk specifically about the mental health aspects, maybe just give them a, a little brief background before your previous life when you actually were um, working outside of this field. Just just introduce yourself to the audience. Going back to your childhood in in Britain. Yeah, and no, I, uh, you just mentioned I was born and uh, my early life was was in the UK, down in Sussex. At the age of 13, my father unfortunately committed suicide. Unbeknown to the family, was going bankrupt and dealt with it uh, in that way. The net result of that was that my mother was offered the opportunity of bringing me out to Australia. Uh, you know, with bankruptcy, we obviously lost everything. So uh, there was not a lot to keep us in, in England at, at that stage. She was offered an assisted passage by the Australian government, as I was. And the net result of that was when I was 14, I came to Australia. I think the effect of what happened to my father showed itself in the fact that I suddenly became incredibly studious at school and then through university. And that was probably a reaction to the insecurity that was caused by his death. Then went into law and then investment banking and then uh, spent about 30 years as an investment banker, both in Australia and overseas, and loved it. But as part of the later stage of investment banking, started getting back involved with the community and particularly the not-for-profit sector and started off in the homelessness sector, but then moved to overseas development and social inclusion. And then at the ripe old age of 54, decided that uh, I'd had enough of investment banking and it was time for me to uh, to do something completely different. And since then... I've basically been a, what I would refer to as an engaged philanthropist. In other words, I I go into areas of social need with philanthropy, but also roll up my sleeves and get involved directly to try and change or meet a particular social need or, or, or try to help to solve uh, a really difficult problem. 
And I remember when I was staying with you in Sydney, you, I was reading the local newspaper and discovered you being very instrumental in setting up, I think, uh, homes uh, for uh, abused women there. And that was your your first move into sort of the charity sector, is that right? It wasn't my first move, but that, that that's uh, an organisation called Women's Community Shelters, which was set up, uh, which I set up 11 years ago, and is now one of the largest shelter operators for homeless and at-risk women in New South Wales, and I think will shortly be expanding into Victoria. The, the unique thing about that particular charity is it's a community-based approach where we work with uh, people in communities that need shelters and need transitional accommodation for homeless and at-risk women. And we really empower them through knowledge and some funding to start their own shelters. So it's it's really a way of trying to change the paradigm by working at the community level rather than believing that everything can be done in a hierarchical level. And, you know, in the not-for-profit sector, I'm a great believer that uh, hierarchies don't work. You've got to empower local people to solve local problems. And then you, you say you moved four or five years ago to set up Mind Medicine Australia. So tell us about that. What it, What is it and what's its aim? Yeah, well, just again, by way of background, if, you know, I was heavily involved in the homelessness area. And if you look at homelessness, then probably 80% of homeless people have mental illness issues, which isn't surprising when you think about it. And, you know, the problem is that, you know, governments and philanthropists set out all, all sorts of programs to try and help people in those circumstances. But the reality is that unless you can help them with their mental illness, it's asking a lot of them to, uh, to get their lives back together again. So that was, I guess, my interest in the mental health sector came from, but it was really brought to a head by my wife, Tanya de Jong, who came across, and who was also, I might add, very actively involved in the not-for-profit sector. She came across uh, some reports about uh, how successful psychedelic-assisted therapies were in overseas trials and got really excited about it, told me that I, I should get excited about it as well. So, you know, being an ex-investment banker, I rolled up my sleeves and got into, involved in, in understanding the research. And really to my surprise, because I had no knowledge of psychedelic therapies before that time, to my surprise, what I found in the research was, was that these therapies were showing remarkable remission rates in overseas trials. What Tanya then did is she reached out to uh, a number of researchers, and that included Rob, Robin Card-Harris and, and, and obviously you, David, at Imperial College. And... Because we got so fascinated in these uh, therapies, we tried to get onto a trial, and but was told that we couldn't because we didn't have any obvious mental illness that would fit a particular clinical trial. But got to understand that it was legal in the Netherlands, and went over there with a therapist, and went through psilocybin, the psilocybin experience, and came out of that. I've got to say, gobsmacked by the experience. Uh -huh. Found it absolutely extraordinary, but understood pretty quickly why it could be so effective for somebody uh, with you know severe depression and then did the same thing with MDMA and again realized having gone through the experience how useful it would be as a treatment option in uh, the mental health area in Australia so that led to us uh, saying well if we think it can be relevant for mental health what are we going to do about it and the logical thing was to start my medicine Australia as a charity so you know no conflicts as a charity to develop what we call the ecosystem in Australia, which is really to develop the infrastructure so that these medicines or these medicinal therapies can be available to people in this country who need them through, uh, obviously, the medical sector in clinical environments. And um, we'll come back to the, what, what you've done with my medicine Australia in a while, but 
I've always been moved by your your own. Again, there's a personal tale there which you may or may not want to talk about uh, now about, about your your previous wife. I mean, is that something you want to share? Because it's a, I, I found you know rather you know, it's a very moving and compelling story. Yeah, no, very happy to. I, I was with a a very very special, beautiful lady for about twenty five years. Uh, Ellie was her name. She was a nurse educator, so she was a, a natural carer, and had spent you know most of her adult life caring for people, or educating carers. Unfortunately, as she got older, I mean, she suffered from depression. But unfortunately, as she got older, her condition worsened, and it got to the stage where Ellie became an alcoholic, and a serious alcoholic, and frankly. When I used to leave the office, I'd make the phone call to Ellie to let, let her know I was on my way home. And depending upon whether she slurred her voice or whether she spoke normally, I would know whether I was going to have a really rugged evening or a, or a nice evening. And it got to the stage where uh, I found it so difficult that we separated. After we separated, Ellie became suicidal. And she was a remarkable lady, but uh, as I say, she became suicidal but also very concerned about seeing therapists. She was very concerned about uh, confidentiality. And what I did was I arranged for a, a therapist to fly up from Melbourne. We were living in Sydney at the time. And the therapist spent the weekend with Ellie. And at the end of the weekend, I, I got a phone call from the therapist saying, you know, can you come around because Ellie wants to tell you something. And, you know, I went around to where the therapy was taking, taking place. And when I got there, the therapist said in front of Ellie, Ellie, are you sure... I've got your permission to tell you, to, sorry, to tell Peter what happened. And uh, Ellie said yes. And what I learned was that Ellie's father had died when she was young. Well, I knew that. Ellie, her, her mother had then remarried. I knew that to a guy called Reg, who was an ex-merchant seaman. What I didn't know was that Reg had repeatedly raped Ellie when Ellie was a young child. And what he would do after raping her would, would be to... Uh, basically say that if, if she told anybody, he'd kill it, he, he would kill her mother. So you there have you know the most traumatic situation for a young girl of, of not only getting physical rape from somebody who you should be able to trust, but then you know seeing your, your mother's life being threatened. And that obviously had a deep impact on Ellie. And when I asked her at that meeting with a the therapist why she'd never told me, because you know we've been together for nearly 25 years, her response was, I felt ashamed, which I, I'm told is a, a typical response from uh, an adult who's suffered that sort of abuse when they, were, when they were a child. So, I mean, Ellie unquestionably had post-traumatic stress disorder from that. And had I known about these therapies, or had they been avail available during the time that we were together, had Ellie had access to these therapies, then she'd have had a real chance of, uh, I think, coming to terms with what happened to her. Yes, and uh, I think that's one of the reasons that you and I are so optimistic or certainly so committed to psychedelic and MDMA therapy is that it offers a chance to undo something that's been done a long time ago and has been become deeply ingrained in, in people's mental processes in a very negative and destructive way. I and mean, as, as a psychiatrist, you, you know, obviously I met on a daily basis people who were suffering the the long-term consequences of of childhood neglect or abuse, and it was extremely difficult to do anything. One one actually didn't know what to do because 
going back through it through talking therapy often brought back memories which people couldn't cope with it. They would dissociate or, or become extremely distressed. And so what we tended to do was try to patch up the, the misery and the, and the distress with, with antidepressants, without really undoing the, the history and undoing the memories. And that's where psychedelics just seem to have a real potential to, to allow people to rectify in, in their own minds this distorted perspective that they've had or, which has been put in them. I mean, as you know, as you, as you say so graphically, from, you know, from Ellie's example, the sort of mental torture, the physical abuse and the mental torture that was imposed on her by her abusive father is something that she ended up blaming herself for in this peculiar and destructive way that people, people do. So we're both on a mission, which is to give people <laughs> an option, a challenge, to give them a chance to try something different. And that's what my medicine, I suppose, is really largely about, education and now bringing therapy in. Is that fair? Yeah. By the way, just comment on your comment there that, uh, you know, Ellie, uh, she took SSRIs and she would basically, you know, psychiatrist shop. In other words, uh, when I... A psychiatrist couldn't deal with her problem. She'd go to the next psychiatrist, or when she heard something she didn't she didn't like, she'd go to the next psychiatrist, and the problem was never solved. Yeah, my medicine Australia is very much set up, as I say, to develop the ecosystem uh, to make these therapies available. I should emphasise there, David, that we regard the doctor-patient relationship as sacrosanct, and we're not trying to get in the in the way of that, and we're not trying to we're not trying to say that these therapies are for everybody. What we do want to see is psychiatrists having them in their toolbox so that they can explain psychedelic therapies as an option to appropriate patients. And between the psychiatrist and the patient, they can they can make up their own mind whether, you know, the patient continues with SSRIs or some other pharmaceutical or does something else, including uh, uh, psychedelic assisted therapies. So just tell us how you've gone about this, uh, the educational process, which I've been part of, but it be better, much better coming from, from you. Tell people about your training schemes. Yeah, well, there's, there's really four components to the strategy. And the first one is awareness building. And that's where, David, you, you've helped us enormously. And that's all about getting out there and explaining the science and the data and the potential of these therapies to uh, different stakeholder groups. And they would range from uh, groups of psychiatrists, psychologists, psychotherapists, and other clinicians to uh, regulators, politicians, and members of the general public. And we do that in, in a number of forms, you know, written forms. We send out regular EDMs. We have a large da database of uh, people who are interested. We've got a very informative website. But we also run webinars. And the webinars are designed to enable people to go up the learning curve. And we invite guests to deliver presentations who've got demonstrable expertise with these therapies and with clinical trials. And David, that's obviously where you've helped us enormously. I must say it's uh, it's been fun doing that because you you do have a very high you have a lot of people on these webinars and they're also they're all very both interested and questioning so that you've got many of them do have professional backgrounds in the field and so it's, they're actually they're learning experiences for the teacher as well as the uh, the student which is good. The other thing about that we do with these webinars is that you know whilst I think people in Australia generally realise that all is not well with mental health. And, you know, most of us know somebody who's suffering from some sort of mental illness. I think it becomes uh, quite confronting for a person to realise that the mental illness epidemic is as bad as it is. Uh, you know, in Australia, they talked about 
uh, one in five people having a mental illness pre-COVID. So, you know, and we know it's now worse than that. So just taking people through that actually has an impact. But the second thing that has a real impact, and this is, I think, for people who don't work in the mental illness sector, is the fact that the treatments that we have available just don't work for a large number of people. And so for those people where treatments don't work, you know, you can offer them all sorts of support, but actually you're not getting de- you're not getting to the hub of the problem, which is the fact that the treatment's not effective. And when we give people that context, and then we start talking about the results that you and others have achieved, David, with these therapies, uh, it really opens people's eyes that there is another way to uh, hopefully develop an environment where we get more people out of the sector because they're well, not because they're uh, but they've just lost interest because they don't see the mental health sector as being supportive for them. That's a really good point you make there, Peter, because, yes, we talk all the time about the scale of the problem, but often we, we don't realise that could be come across as being defeatist or overwhelm people, and it is important to, to emphasise that you know, these innovations actually could, could transform at least a significant proportion of that problem. Yeah. That's exactly right. So, you know, the first area is awareness. The second area was that we sort of predicted that even if we could explain to the or convince the regulators about the merits of these therapies, the likelihood is they'd come back and say, well, they look interesting, Peter, but you haven't got any people in Australia who understand how to use them. So that then led us into developing a certificate course in psychedelic-assisted therapies. It's run by clinicians. David, again, you've been a, a wonderful supporter of that and a presenter in that course. The course gets amazing co- testimonials from clinicians who do it. We've now trained about 240 psychiatrists, psychologists, psychotherapists and other clinicians and we'll be training another 100 to 150 this year. And that's all designed to make sure that we've got clinicians available to enable these treatments to take place. And the other thing we've done as part of that is we've just got ethics approval for a healthy person's trial, which will enable therapists who graduate from that course or clinicians who graduate from that course to be eligible to uh, actually take these medicines in a clinical environment to really understand what the patient will be going through. Oh, excellent. And that, where will that be run? Or is that several centres or one? That'll be run out of Sydney and Melbourne. It's a really interesting trial because it's there's going to be EEGs on the brain to understand what's happening before and after and during. But the second thing about it is it's going to be done in small groups so you start to better understand group dynamics. And the third thing, and this is qualitative rather than quantitative, the leaders of the trial will be asking for feedback from the clinicians who go through the experience about why they think it's beneficial to a patient, if they do think it's beneficial to a patient, and what they've learned from the experience. And we think that that information could actually be very useful for uh, developing better protocols going forward. Oh, there's no doubt it will be uh, definitely feedback in a a useful way, no question. And we're we're looking to do something similar here in in drug with drug science in the UK with with psychological therapists, but we haven't got off the ground yet. So that's exciting that you're, you know, that's when will you start, do you know, this protocol? Well, I hope in the next two months. I mean, we're currently in the process of applying for import permits and getting the medicines into the country. And is that for both psilocybin and MDMA or just psilocybin? That's for both psilocybin and MDMA for for that trial, yes. Exciting. And the other part of that, David, which which I know you know about, is that we've we've entered into a supply agreement with Optimi out of Canada for medical-grade MDMA and medical-grade psilocybin. So medicine supplies won't be an issue in terms of uh, this authorised prescriber scheme, which I guess we'll talk about shortly. Yeah, no, that's one of the um, 
great advantages of, of being a, a philanthropist is you have you can, you can make your decisions. You can you can fill all the boxes in, can't you? So actually, getting supply has always been something that's been a challenge to to us in our research, and uh, we've obviously always had to do it through commercial suppliers who had always want something out of it, you know, they will, even though they discount it for us. There's always a, there's always some contractual issue. But, but you're autonomous now. You, know, you, you essentially can, can basically order it in, and then your researchers are free to use it as, as they like. That's right. And when you think about the mission of My Medicine Australia, it's really to make these therapies available to people who need them through the medical sector, but in, a, in an affordable way. And uh, affordable means that, uh, you know, the person who... Uh, lives off social security and is really struggling but has a need for these therapies also has the option of taking them and that cost isn't going to be an inhibitor no that's superb you can do that so that's the second then the third what's the third prong well the third prong is working with the university sector mm -hmm. and the reason why that's so critical is obviously that most of the trials are done out of the university sector and overseas we've now had a like a real resurgence in Australia in this area with uh, a number of trials taking place. So the work with the universities is all about is all about supporting trials, but also looking for grant money mm. uh, to support uh, university trials. And there we we presented to the then Minister for Health in Canberra and advocated for a grant round for psychedelic assisted therapies. And the net result of that was uh, the government doing a $15 million research grant round which has supported a significant number of trials in Australia. So I mean, this is one of the reasons that I was keen to engage with you and Australia, um, was because Australia was the first country where the government itself said we should be investing in this, this, in this area because it's clearly you know, something that's important. So you were the first. <laughs> you still are in a way. I mean, there's not been a similar sort of open call for government-funded psychedelic research anywhere in the world since. I mean, there are specific grants have been awarded by NIDA, and that, but not there's not been this open call. And, you know, let's take, can you tell a little bit more about the, the process by which you managed to to lever this? Or well, maybe you didn't have to lever. Maybe they were really willing to give it to you. But it, what was the technique you used? Well, the, I mean, the technique was to uh, advocate with the Minister for Health at the federal level. The way we got in was to... Uh, obviously talked to the advisors to the minister so that they understood the relevancy. When we had the presentation to the minister, we brought in uh, Professor Arthur, Arthur Christopoulos, who's the Dean of the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Sciences, one of Australia's leading pharmacologists. Uh, he joined us in the presentations. During the presentation, we took the minister and his advisors through the data coming out of overseas trials in the context of the mental health epidemic or the mental illness epidemic that we have in Australia. And at the end of the, the presentation, it was interesting. He, the minister said, well, this is actually the most positive presentation I've had on mental health since I've been minister. And you know, that, that's sort of salient, isn't it? Because most people who present to government ministers just want more money. Yes. And they don't come up, and they don't come up with solutions, whereas what we were doing through the great work of, of you, David, and, and your colleagues is actually presenting a a potential solution to uh, you know what is an what is a terrible and, and apparently an, you know it appears to be an immovable problem and that is uh, treatment ineffectiveness for a significant number of people and the net result of that was that he then started talking about well we should actually start funding this in Australia 
And that then in turn led to the grant round a few months later. Hello everyone, Dr. Hannah Thurger here. Sorry to interrupt the show, but we have something really exciting that we wanted to share with you all. Drug Science is teaming up with the UK's most prolific psychedelic research centre, Imperial College London, to record a one-off podcast special. But wait, there's more. On Tuesday the 15th of August from 6.30 until 9.30, we're taking a conversation offline and bringing it to the heart of West London. So yes, that's right. Not only are we collaborating with Imperial College for this prestigious podcast episode, this will be a live podcast recording and you're invited to be a part of our audience. Imperial College is sending us their best and brightest minds for an exclusive insight into the world of psychedelic clinical trials, many of which are not even public knowledge at this point. So mark your calendars for Tuesday the 15th of August, doors open at 6pm and the podcast recording starts at 6.30pm sharp. And as always, our Drug Science Premium Community members will be able to attend this event for free and will even be invited to participate in the conversation too. We'll have a Q&A session where community members can ask their burning questions to our panel of experts. So it's a chance to engage directly with the leading minds in, in the field and ask Dave pretty much anything. Find out how to become a community member by visiting the link in the show notes. Otherwise, tickets are available now. Please see the other link in the show notes. So don't wait too long though, as space is limited and we do expect this event to sell out fast. I look forward to seeing you there. And now back to the show. Yeah, and in fact, so there are studies going on. I know I'm involved in one of them in Sydney with, with anorexia, but there are studies going on in, with both psilocybin and MDMA in a range of different, different disorders. Uh, so credit to you for that. And I suppose, you know, I'm just very envious that you could actually get the ear of the minister, something <laughs> we think that he failed to do in drug science in Britain. But I think the problem is not, is not actually our charities are so different from yours. I think it's our ministers are definitely much different to yours. Yeah, I think, I think also, David, one of the, there are obviously great similarities between Australia and, and England, but there are also big differences. And one of the big differences is that this is probably a, a more informal culture and uh, it's a smaller country. We're way over-governed because we've got state governments as well as federal governments. But I think access to ministers is actually easier here because of all of that. And that enabled us, I guess, to get through the, the ramparts and uh, have that time with the minister. And, you know, it was pre-COVID, but even then, mental illness was getting worse. And the minister didn't have a response to that other than to, you know, to look at improving processes or patient access gateways, which is you know, all very nice. But if you get a better patient access gateway or greater efficiencies as a patient, but you don't get well, it's sort of, it's sort of nice, but not great. But I think also probably the fact that you were coming as a complete neutral, you didn't have any axe to grind, you weren't an academic, you hadn't, you know, this wasn't your research, you weren't making money, you weren't a company, you were coming as a, as a truly sort of disinterested in the best sense of the word, but educated outsider who could see a problem and, and was bringing a new vision to it. And, and that probably helped you get through because you weren't a threat to them, were you? You were, you were a solution rather than a threat. That's right. And we, we had no axe to grind either, and we had no uh, vested interest. And, and as you would know, David, there's an awful lot of conflicts across this sector. <laughs> yes, yes, we've elucidated some of those 
subsequently, haven't we? We'll come back to that maybe at the end. But <laughs> <laughs> okay, so work with the university sector, which, as you say, is as actually. I mean, again, you know, when I compare my, you know, the UK with Australia, you know, there's just so much more interest in Australia in this in working in this field. In the UK, you know, there's only one or two centres, you know, apart from, you know, Imperial and King's, and then it's, there's nothing. And it, in Australia, I think most universities now have at least some person that's interested in doing psychedelic So you're a bit more open-minded. Yeah. No, I think that's right. But again, it came from the great work that you and your colleagues were doing overseas. Because Australia, you know, four and a half, five years ago, was really nowhere in this sector. And if you mention the word psychedelic or the phrase psychedelic-assisted therapies, you know, researchers and uh, clinicians would, would just look at you with really no understanding of the potential. But I think it was the combination of the work that you, you and your colleagues were doing together with the government being convinced that there should be a grant round and researchers starting to realise actually there's money in psychedelic-assisted therapy research that got the universities to start focusing on it. Yes, and there'll be a steady output of uh, independent research findings over the next few years, which will, which will hopefully be self-reinforcing. And then what was the fourth prong in your, uh, your four-pronged attack? Well, the fourth prong was all the practicalities of how you actually uh-huh. go from a situation where these are prohibited substances and you can't use them outside of clinical trials to a situation where they can be used clinically within appropriate controls. And that covers things like you know the rescheduling that's taken place, medicine supply, working through how these therapies can be given in a way that's uh, cost-effective to the patient. In other words, you know, keeping the costs to a manageable level. Longer term, looking for government subsidisation of, uh, of the clinical costs. It's all those myriad of activities. And also thinking about how you scale this across Australia, because you, know, you don't want this to just to be something that's used by a privileged or available to a privileged small group of people. You want it to be available through the medical system with appropriate controls to people wherever they are who need access. And that's that's all about scale and thinking about scale. Yes, which is, again, you know, where your background in, in, in investment and thinking about how you develop ideas is obviously going to be very useful. So you had, you had the vision, you had your, your four, uh, your, the four planks of your the charity. So then tell people about how you went about making the first real move beyond the training yeah well the first real move was to uh, see if we could get access to these medicines through australia's special access scheme and that's a scheme run by the tga for unregistered medicines so people won't know what the tga is yeah therapeutic goods administration which is the equivalent of uh, the fda in the states and the regulatory body they've got a scheme which is called the special access scheme which enables a a medical practitioner to to apply for approval on a a patient-specific basis where the patient is treatment resistant and in quotes at risk. So the first the first move was to see if we could get a psychiatrists to apply for their patients under that scheme. And we found that the TGA was actually very receptive. I think we had about 30 approvals given by the TGA uh, covering both MDMA and psilocybin. And they were giving approvals within about 36 hours. So it's pretty efficient. It was pretty efficient. But the problem is that uh, health is divided, health responsibility in in Australia is divided between the Commonwealth government and states and territories. And the states and territories didn't recognise a Schedule 9 substance as a medicine. So there were no patient permit systems available around Australia, even, even if a doctor had got special access scheme approval from the TGA. 
which would mean, ironically enough, that a doctor who got special access scheme approval from the TGA and then took possession of medical grade MDMA or psilocybin in accordance with that approval would actually be breaching uh, recreational drug laws at the state and territory level. So, you know, that looked like it had potential, but clearly uh, there was a barrier there at the state and territory level. So then we, we started looking at rescheduling to Schedule 8 because, you know, if a medicine is in Schedule 8, then in most cases you don't actually need a permit access approach at the state and territory level because they all recognise that Schedule 8 medicines are medicines. So I'll just clarify that for the UK and listeners. So that's Schedule 8 in Australia is equivalent to Schedule 2 in the UK. So currently in, in the UK, psilocybin, MDMA are Schedule 1 drugs. And, and Schedule 1 essentially says these are drugs that are very dangerous, very addictive, they have no useful medical value, and that's your Schedule 9. And your vision was to get them into 8, which says basically they are medicines, and uh, and they actually do have, therefore have medical value, and therefore are safe enough to be used. So that was your that was the challenge. Yeah, and there's recognition that, you know, Schedule 8 is controlled medicine, so we, you know, we always knew there were going to be controls imposed by the TGA if we were successful, but that's okay, you know, provided those controls are manageable. So you pursued this national campaign to to get the rescheduling and uh, quite a few setbacks before you achieved it. So, but you didn't give up. Talk us through some of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it was a long drawn out process and to reschedule in, in Australia, and I, I presume it's the same in the UK, David, uh, anyone can apply for a rescheduling. Uh, but once you apply, then there's a process you've got to go through in Australia, which takes about nine months, nine or 10 months. There are two public submission periods where members of the public can comment on the application. There's an interim decision given by the TGA and then a final decision. So we initially applied in, uh, I think it was July 2020, for rescheduling. We got knocked back at the interim stage the following February. We then campaigned hard and the the response of the TGA was to appoint a a special committee, so-called independent committee, to look at uh, psilocybin and MDMA. They came back with results that actually would have supported rescheduling, but the net result of that whole process was uh, a final decision against us. Now, having said all that, you know, a lot of people at the time sort of said to us, well, Peter, what a waste of time. But we never regarded it as a waste of time because both in the interim decision and the final decision, the TGA or the delegate acting for the TGA had to give reasons against, in other words, had to give reasons supporting the refusal to reschedule. And as you get reasons, then you've got something to target. And that meant that uh, ongoing app- the, our second application, which was lodged uh, about three months after our first application was refused, could be way, way more targeted. And again, that went through the same you know, nine-month process, interim and final decisions. But this time around, we, we also combined that with a major campaign. So a much more targeted application and a much bigger campaign we had 13,000 submissions lodged which is the most submissions lodged yes just say a little bit more about this picture I mean I think just be clear so everyone's very clear what what you're talking about because it that the graphic that I have and you showed to the uh, TZ the graphic of people supporting versus people not supporting this so so the process was that any person could write in to the TGA either supporting or opposing this rescheduling is that right yeah, I mean, basically, the, the application's put online, and then there's a public submissions period, period which lasts about a month in the lead-up to the interim decision, where anybody can put in a submission. 
And then there's a, after the interim decision is announced, there's another public submission period to comment on the interim decision, again, where anyone can put in submissions. And then that leads into the final decision. Now, what was really good about the second application process is we managed to get over 13,000 submissions lodged. Over half of them came from uh, uh, practitioners in the health sector, and they included a significant number of researchers. Of the 13,000 submissions, over 98% were in favour. So at this stage, you know, the TGA is dealing with not only, I think, a much more focused application from us, but also a large number of people putting up their hands and saying it's time. And when you get that sort of number of people putting up their hands and saying it's time, it also becomes a political issue as well, because, you know, 13,000 can quite easily become 100,000, you know, where, where there's momentum, and we clearly had the momentum. The other thing I, I say we did, David, is we got, I mean, you were very kind to provide an expert's or a letter uh, that went into our application uh, about the uh, the safety and efficacy of uh, psilocybin and MDMA. And uh, we had uh, Professor Christopoulos, who I mentioned before, do the same. And then after we failed at the interim stage this time around, you know, you were good enough to come and spend three, three weeks of your life on what was an incredibly demanding roadshow to explain to people you know, why the interim decision was wrong and why the final decision should be in favour of uh, these therapies or these medicines being rescheduled on, on a restricted basis into Schedule 8. As you'll yes, and we'll say in a minute, you won, you won, the, uh, which was great. But what was also really telling, there were two things that I found really telling about this process, and they were both about transparency. I mean, one was that those 13,000, or 98% of them, the people declared who they were. But the ones who were opposed to the rescheduling, they didn't declare who they were. They, they, they were secret. And so you couldn't really judge what the basis of the, their thinking was and, and you know, whether it was actually related to evidence or some kind of moral position. So that even the ones that opposed it, even that they're, they're very small, they, they were less compelling even than they could have been because they wouldn't declare who they were. But the other thing that we worked hard on that I found disturbing was the fact that the, the so-called experts, the psychiatry experts who were opposing this process, again, weren't open, weren't, weren't, we didn't know who they were. They were, it was a black box, wasn't it? It was a hidden committee. Yeah, that is interesting because, you, you know, you're, you're referring there to the uh, Royal College of Psych, the, the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. And there you've got a situation where, you know, their position is uh, determined by a, a committee they produce a, an information memorandum which they publicise, which, as you'll recall, David, contained a significant number of errors. But you never actually know who's on that committee and who's been part of that decision-making process and how the, the draft information memorandum is vetted to ensure correctness. So you, you're not dealing with identified human beings, which makes it more challenging. And one of the things I found most frustrating about the the block initially was that they seem to be using completely different standards when you compared their their reports on psilocybin and mdma with the one that they had previously written which allowed ketamine you could see that clearly using different standards and, and actually exposing the fact that they you know they were approaching the two separate medicines from very different positions. One was trying to find reasons not to approve and the other was trying to find reasons to approve. That actually was quite telling in the end, wasn't it? You could see that they it undermined their case really because it, well, they weren't consistent and, and, uh, and transparent. 
in the decision making. That's right. Yeah, you did a wonderful letter explaining uh, the lack of consistency between their treatment of ketamine and their treatment of psychedelic med- psilocybin and MDMA, and it was very telling. And you know, the college, unfortunately, in Australia, has got a reputation for being uh, very slow with innovation. Despite you know, you go onto their website and it's all about innovation. In they haven't got a, a strong reputation for it, for innovation. And in a sector that, unfortunately, doesn't provide effective treatments for a large number of people, that, that sort of approach is not, uh, is not great. But the TGA came to what we would agree was the right decision, and that was uh, a very memorable day, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a very exciting day. And, uh, uh, you know, we'd obviously hope that uh, this time around it would be different. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's, if, if you're in government, it's much easier to say no often than it, it is to say yes. And to the credit of the TGA, they did look through the facts and the analysis. And they came to a conclusion that actually within the, the constraints that they drew up, it was appropriate to reschedule and all credit to them for doing that. So let's be very clear on what the rescheduling, explain to the listeners exactly what the rescheduling says in terms of the two disorders. Yeah, what it says is that MDMA and psilocybin are only rescheduled to schedule eight in relation to application by psychiatrists for patients with treatment-resistant depression, obviously psilocybin, or treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder, which is obviously MDMA. Any other use of those substances remains in Schedule 9, including, oddly enough, the use of those substances in clinical trials. So it's a limited rescheduling, but, I mean, frankly, there are a huge number of people who've got treatment-resistant depression or treatment-resistant PTSD. So it's a good start. Yes, and you're the first country in the world to have done that. And, you know, such credit to you and MMA for pursuing it. But how are you going to roll it out now? So that, in a way, that was the easy bit. Now, now the challenge comes. Well, the, the other part of the, the equation, which is actually, whilst it requires a few hurdles to overcome, is actually pretty good. And that is that uh, rather than using the special access scheme for these unregistered medicines, which would have obviously required patient-by-patient approvals, what the TGA has done is brought it under what's called the Authorised Prescriber Scheme. And that means that uh, a psychiatrist must become an authorised prescriber. So to become an authorised prescriber, you need to uh, go before an ethics committee and get get the tick from an ethics committee and then take that bit of paper to the TGA to become an authorised prescriber. But once you are an authorised prescriber, you haven't got to go back to the to the TGA or any other regulatory authority for every patient. You just have to report back every six months on the number of patients you've treated and the number of new patients you've treated, which means that, yes, there's a bit of a hurdle getting authorised prescriber status, but once you've got it, then uh, it's you know, pretty unbureaucratic. Yeah, and so what? how is it going to work then? Let's... Uh... Let's finish on the uh, on the future. How how are you organising things in Australia so that we can have access to the medicines and patients can have access to therapists? Well, I mean, the first thing is to uh, to provide uh, support for psychiatrists seeking to uh, become authorised prescribers. And what we've done there is two things. The first thing is we've uh, taken advice from one of the major law f- law firms down here on a state by state basis, so that uh, a psychiatrist in say New South Wales can access. Uh, legal advice on utilising these therapies in New South Wales. And that that applies to psychiatrists around the country. That's the first thing. The second thing which we've talked about is continuing our education programme to train psychiatrists and other clinicians. The third thing is we're putting together some resources for psychiatrists who are seeking to prepare their submission for authorised prescriber status.
So that's getting people through, if you like, the door so they can actually use these therapies. The second thing we've then done is we've got this supply arrangement with uh, Optimi Health in Canada. And that's all about making sure that we've got access to medical grade psilocybin and medical grade MDMA at affordable prices. And you know, we think there that the medicine costs are not going to be an inhibitor because we're going to make sure that they stay as low as possible. So you, my medicine Australia will import and then distribute to, to pharmacies which can dispense. Is that the vision? Well, it's a, it's a pharmacist working with us right. who will be doing the actual importing because it has to be done through the pharmacist. And the pharmacists will then distribute to uh, to psychiatrists around Australia, but we're basically un- we basically entered into the supply arrangements, and we're underwriting the what is effectively guaranteed supply. Super, and also you've now working with the University of in Canberra, the Australian National University, and Paul, Professor Fitzgerald to to create some kind of um, database or at least audit of outcome. Is that right? Yeah, and again, there, David, with your support and involvement. Uh, yeah, the whole idea there is to have a situation where there's a central registry and psychiatrists and patients provide data back to the, to the registry about the effectiveness of the treatments. So you get real-world evidence building up over time about how well these therapies work in clinical practice as opposed to the more narrowly-based clinical trials. Yes, it's very exciting because it's the next couple of years, that data could be transformational for most Western health systems, showing that these drugs work in the real world as well as in clinical trials will massively accelerate acceptance, I think, and, and also help people get much clearer in their minds as how to use them and what, what kind of challenges there'll be and how to, how to optimize their dosing, etc. So, so yes, you're, unquestionably, Australia is leading the world here. And uh, I have to say, Peter, it's largely down to you and Tanya and My Medicine Australia for for having the, uh, the strength of vision to do this. Well done. No, no, but also, I might just say, David, with a certain professor, i.e. I, I, Professor Nutt, being prepared to come to Australia during that critical period last year after the, the failure to get it through, it through the interim decision. And uh, we haven't really talked about it, but one of the things you did, David, is you presented to the TGA. And uh, ahead of that meeting, I spoke to the, the head of the TGA and asked him how many people he thought would come to that presentation. And he suggested, well, maybe a dozen. He said he didn't know because all he does is send out the invitation to people in the TGA and, and the Department of Health. And uh, But on p- prior experience, probably 12. And I think we had about 140, which are, you know is real evidence of just the focus that was taking place within the Department of Health and the TGA. And then you ran them through a presentation which uh, on safety and efficacy and background. And, you know, that was a, a really critical part, I think, of getting the right decision from the TGA because, you know, when you, when you hear from an expert in these medicines and you're not an expert, then, you know, you've got to have good reasons, I think, for uh, not following the advice of that expert. So, th- so thank you for being prepared to come out. Yeah, well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. But also, I think we dispelled a lot of myths. This, this, we've over 50 years of, of collected disinformation about these drugs, denial of efficacy and overemphasis on, on adverse effects. And it, it's really, it was a great opportunity to talk to, to regulators about this. I've never had the opportunity in the UK or elsewhere. So, so I, I am very grateful 
to my medicine Australia for actually allowing this to happen. And congratulations, without you guys, it wouldn't have happened. There's no question about that. So, Peter, I, I want to wish you really well in the future. I mean, this is, it's, you know, one rung up the ladder, and eventually I think we will hopefully see with the outcomes of your trials, we'll see, or your initiatives, your registry, we'll see safety and efficacy, and maybe we'll see these medicines being rolled out into other disorders, such as addictions, where they're also, you know, there are great treatment needs. But, but I, I want to thank you and Tanya for all you've done. It's been a, it's been a very impressive, uh, very few charities have succeeded as well as you have. So thank you. Well, thank you, David, and thank you for being, I mean, you gave the, the inaugural keynote uh, four and a half years ago when we started. And you've been with us ever, th ever since. So thank you for your support and drug sciences support. And keep up the good work. Thank you very much. <laughs>